Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next. Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post-pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated or had a baby or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code JRRPODCAST to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. And welcome back, everyone, to our study through the Book of Acts, a study called Unstoppable. Before we get started, I want to recommend the primary commentary that I've been using as I've studied this. I go to a number of different commentaries, and the fact is that I don't depend on commentaries all that much. I feel like we should study the English Bible thoroughly, and it can reveal its secrets to us in marvelous ways. But I have found a great deal of background help in Ben Witherington III's book, The Acts of the Apostles. It's a thick paperback commentary. And if you ever want to study Acts on your own, then I want to recommend Ben Witherington's work. He's a brilliant uh, man. He has commentaries on multiple books of the Bible, and you almost always find something helpful in what he says. Well, I want to tell you today about Katie McKenna, who was run over by a truck, literally by an 18-wheeler. She was 24 years old at the time and riding her bicycle through Brooklyn. She shouldn't really have survived the wreck. Every rib was broken, and her internal bleeding was so severe that a priest gave her last rites. She was in surgery for many hours in the hospital for many weeks. Her body was literally stapled together, and for an entire year, she wasn't able to look at herself in the mirror. The injuries were too devastating to see. When she returned home from the hospital, she was still traumatized physically and psychologically. But do you know who helped her? Her parents were there. And this is what she later wrote. I think it's a wonderful paragraph. McKenna said, The question I would always ask them, and I ask it all the time, was if it was going to be okay. I wasn't even sure what it was. I just needed reassurance. I needed to know that someone had faith that everything was going to be all right. My dad and mom did that for me. They were hopeful, and so I was hopeful. They were sure, so I was sure. Without them, I would have fallen into the dark side of my fear. They pulled me into the light of a better future. Well, that's the ministry of reassurance. She said that she needed reassurance. She said that she needed someone to tell her 
it was all going to be okay, whatever it was. She said that because they were strong, she was strong. And I think that we need someone to give us all reassurance about life. When other people are hopeful, when those around us are hopeful, it helps us to be hopeful. Well, we have someone who can do that better than anybody else. And today I would like to talk about tapping in to the Lord's marvelous ministry of reassurance. We're going to begin today, but I think that we will uh, probably stretch this into two episodes. But the story comes from the book of Acts chapter 18 as it relates to Paul's coming to the city of Corinth and trying to establish a church there. So if you have your Bibles, if you're able where you are to turn there, I think it's helpful and you can make notes along the way. But if you're uh, jogging or riding in your car, then you can just listen and check it out later. But the text begins in Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, in a prior episode, I talked about Paul's speech on Mars Hill in Athens, and you may want to go back and live and give that a listen to if you missed it. Uh, but I've often wondered why Paul didn't stay in Athens and build a church there. I mean, Athens was a renowned city. It had been the center of the Greek or Hellenistic Empire. It had been the center and still was of philosophy and academia. But Paul was strategic, and Athens represented the past. Corinth represented the future. Corinth was a major city in southern Greece, about 50 miles from Athens. You may want to take a moment and find a Bible dictionary or just go online and find a map that will help you locate Corinth as it relates to Athens. Corinth was in a very strategic location on the Mediterranean. It was on an isthmus with ports on both sides of it. On the east, it had a port opening to the Aegean Sea, and on the west, the city had a port on the Adriatic. At its narrowest point, the isthmus was only three miles. There's a canal there. Now, I drove over it once, and I still remember that long, narrow canal. But in Paul's day, there was no canal, but ships would sail into one port and be unloaded and their contents transported three miles to be located on another ship. And this kept them from making the dangerous uh, uh, voyage all the way around uh, Greece, southern Greece. Smaller boats were sometimes pulled out of the water and transported on special carts to the other side. And so trade and commerce was literally coming and going in and out of Corinth all the time. Furthermore, Corinth was a new city. The Romans had totally destroyed the old city of Corinth and had completely rebuilt it. So it was literally a new city. There was no building there that was older than 100 years, which in those times of antiquity would have been a very modern city. And it was the most Roman city on the Greek peninsula. It had a very large population of Romans and of Greeks and of Jews. So there was a very large Jewish quarter there, and that's where Paul would have gone first. So Athens was old and passé and fabled for its philosophy and its learning, but Corinth was the new city, gleaming and known for its commerce and also for its pleasures. Corinth was also much larger than Athens, five times as large, according to one source that I studied. Kenneth Gingal, in his commentary on Acts, cites the official population as 200,000, 
which was 20 times larger than Athens, he says, but that Roman number does not include slaves. And there were an estimated half million slaves there. And so the city of Corinth had a population probably of about 700,000 people. And furthermore, the whole city would swell in size when the Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. Thousands of people from all over the empire came. And on a hill above the town stood the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, of beauty, of passion, of pleasure. And inside the city, there were other pagan temples, including a temple for the sun god Apollo. And many of these temples were centered around sexuality. They had uh, the priests were involved in uh, conventional sexual immorality as well as deviant sexual immorality. Corinth was just renowned for its immorality. Katrina and I visited Corinth on one occasion, and to this day the ruins demonstrate what a fabulous city it is. It was destroyed by an earthquake in the 4th century, but in Paul's day it was a gleaming, cosmopolitan, sensual, immoral city. Well, the Apostle Paul sent spent a year and a half in Corinth. But here's what's so interesting. Luke gives us a rather brief account of those 18 months, the year and a half. The story of Paul's time in Philippi that we've already looked at, and in Thessalonica, uh, and even in Athens, are longer, although Paul spent much less time in those other cities. In chapter 17, he was in Athens for just a short time, and yet that account is longer than the story of his 18 months in Corinth. Luke isn't trying to give us a complete history. He is just trying to tell us what he thinks conforms to the overall story that he is writing. But there was one thing he wanted to tell us, and it has to do with this matter of how God reassures us. So this is what I really want you to see, but let's get there by going through verse 2. So there in Corinth, Paul met a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Now, if you study this in the Bible, you'll find that Aquila and Priscilla were a remarkable couple. They show up several times in the New Testament, and always together, Aquila is never mentioned by himself. Priscilla is never mentioned by herself. They are always mentioned together as a couple. It was one of the Bible's great marriages. In fact, I remember once I tried to do a sermon on the great marriages of the Bible, and frankly, I couldn't find very many of them. But this was one of them, and it was a marriage devoted to ministry. Priscilla is often mentioned first when they are mentioned together because, well, it's unusual in the writings of antiquity, but most people believe it's because she was one of the, she was the most vivacious of the two. Perhaps Aquila were, was quieter, but Priscilla was the one with the gift of personality. They were tent makers or leather workers, as Paul was, and they were Christians. So here in this pagan and evil city, God provided Paul with two fellow Christians who helped him earn some money. And I like to try and imagine looking at these three together in my mind's eye. There they are in some little shop talking to customers, trying to sell their tents, especially maybe to travelers who'd come in for the athletic games. How would you like to have the Apostle Paul as your salesman trying to get you to buy a tent or some leather accessory? 
I can just hear him. Look at the quality of this work. Look at the stitching. Look at the texture of this leather. It's worth every penny. Wouldn't you have loved to have had a tent or an awning that Paul made? Well, he did that six days a week, but on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue in the Jewish quarter. Verse 4 says, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, just think of how ordinary these people were. They were leather, leather workers through the week, and they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they just went about normal life in Corinth. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Well, verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. We know from other passages that Silas and Timothy had evidently brought a financial offering from the churches of Macedonia up in the north. These would be the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, maybe some others. And so these churches wanted to provide financial support for the missionary who had brought them Christ and who had been driven out of their land. And this allowed Paul to stop making tents and to start preaching and teaching seven days a week. At first, he worked exclusively among the Jews. Those were his natural connections. He had worshipped with some of these people every Sabbath for a little while, so he was getting to know them, and now he was really able to work intensively among them, following up on those relationships and drawing them into conversations. I suppose he visited their homes, telling them about Jesus. How would you like to look out the window and hear the Apostle Paul would be coming up your sidewalk and knocking on your door and coming into your house and telling you about Jesus. But his message was not universally accepted. Verse 6 says, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I think the Apostle Paul was sort of channeling the prophet Ezekiel here. In his call in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, the Lord had told Ezekiel that if he preached repentance but the people didn't believe, their blood would be on their own heads. So Paul picked up this language from Ezekiel and he spoke it back to these Jews. I don't believe that his pronouncement here indicated a major shift in his overall ministry, only in his ministry in Corinth, because later in Ephesus, Paul again went to the synagogue first. But he was saying that here in Corinth, most of the Jews had rejected his message, so he was now going to turn his attention to the Gentiles. There is an interesting principle here, and I'm still trying to get my arms around it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which was written sometime afterward, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I knew a woman years ago who was very strong in her conviction that we should first take the gospel to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. She felt, for example, that in her own giving and in our church budget, we should include a regular amount devoted to Jewish evangelism. I'm not sure that she's wrong. As I've read and studied the book of Acts during this series of podcasts, I've been struck again and again by the priority of evangelizing the Jewish people. 
I really don't mind telling you that as a result of this study through the book of Acts, I began personally supporting a work of Jewish evangelism in Israel known as One Israel, which is a fabulous Christian ministry taking place among the Israelis. One Israel began as a Bible college in 1990 and now has the only Hebrew-speaking evangelical Bible college in the world. They also have an an evangelistic ministry to members of the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, or the Israeli Army, and they are seeking out every method of evangelism they can find for reaching the Jewish people and also the Palestinians with the gospel of Jesus Christ in Israel. We also have organizations like Jews for Jesus and Chosen People. So we must always keep the evangelization of the Jewish people on our hearts. One day, I believe according to the book of Zechariah, when the Lord returns, the Jewish people will turn to him in mass. But until then, their hearts are closed for the most part. But some are being saved as a harbinger for the future. And this was true in Paul's day too because an amazing thing happened here in chapter 18. The local Jewish synagogue leader, or the pastor as we would say today, was among those who believed and was converted. Let's go on to verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. In other words, this would have been maybe a Gentile who had been proselyted and was worshiping in the synagogue, and he had been converted now by Paul, and Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard believed and were baptized. So this was the beginning of the church in Corinth. We know from the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul baptized Crispus and his family along with a few others. Most of the people were baptized by Timothy or Silas or some of the others. But here we have Crispus being baptized, and we have the beginning of this church in Corinth. But now, remember, there was a lot of tension here. Paul was in a tense situation, especially as it related to the Jews. I'm sure that you've been in tense situations at some point in your life where emotions ran high and your nerves were on edge. I certainly have. And there's no telling what slurs and threats some of these people shouted to Paul, and they were threatening to bring him before the authorities. And remember, Paul had already been through a lot. So that brings me to what I really want to say. I want to propose a theory that Paul at this time was suffering from some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome because of the violence he'd experienced so far on this second missionary tour. We need to remember what had happened to Paul on this second journey. He, along with Luke and Silas and Timothy, had gone to Philippi, where Paul caused a riot, and he was stripped either naked or nearly naked, and he was flogged along with Silas. And the text says he was severely flogged. The indication was that his skin had been sliced open with each whistling stroke of that rod, and the pain must have been unbearable. We know this because later the jailer washed his wounds. And then he was taken and put in stocks with no way of tending to his wounds, which would have been screaming in pain. And I just can't imagine what he endured. Can you imagine? 
going through like that, not even Paul was immune from post-traumatic stress over very painful and catastrophic events that happened to him. And then he was run out of Thessalonica, and he was run out of Berea. Everywhere he went, a riot broke out, and he was in danger of more torture. And then he had left his workers in various places and had traveled alone to Athens and on to Corinth. And he later said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, that when he came to Corinth, he had arrived in weakness, and he was full of fear and trembling. He felt like he had been run over like a truck. So don't you think that it's likely that Paul had been traumatized by his experiences? I know that I would have been. Trauma is an ongoing emotional response that follows something that has hit us with overwhelming stress, stress that exceeds our ability to cope with it. Trauma may result from a single distressing experience or from a series of events. And post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental health condition triggered by a terrifying event or series of events, and we know that many combat veterans suffer PTSD, and so do victims of sexual abuse, and so do those who suffer cataclysmic accidents. Many things can cause trauma, but it isn't a new condition. People in antiquity faced it too, and apparently the Apostle Paul was battling something like this because he confessed he was living in fear and trembling. He needed counseling. So one night here in Corinth, Jesus Christ himself came down to visit Paul in a vision and to give him a remarkable message to give him divine reassurance. I don't know if the two had an actual conversation. I don't know how long the two of them met in this vision. I don't know if verse 9 is a summary of a longer conversation or if verses 9 and 10 represent the full extent of what Jesus said. But one thing I know, because these words are recorded for us here in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, they have significance for us too. They are for us as well. So let's read them. This is the heart of what I want to say this week and next. Verses 9 and 10 say, One night the Lord, indicating the Lord Jesus, spoke to Paul in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or harm you, because I have many people in this city. Now this message has five parts. The first one is, do not be afraid. According to the commentators, this is given in the present imperative sense, which has the meaning of stop being afraid. I've gone through the Bible and counted 74 times in the Bible when we read those four words in the New International Version, do not be afraid. And then there are other times when other phrases are used, such as do not fear. Years ago, I went through the Bible and numbered how often these sorts of reassuring commands are given. I can't recall the outcome right now, but I'm thinking about going back through the Bible and listing all of the various phrases which mean, in essence, do not be afraid, don't fear, keep up your courage. Someone said that there are 366 such occurrences, but I'm not sure about that. Someone else said that this is the most frequently repeated command in the Bible. 
but I'm not absolutely sure about that either. I just know that this phrase occurs over and over and over, and the actual words, do not be afraid, show up 74 times. It's obvious in the Bible that the Lord knows we are fearful by nature. We are like sheep, and sheep are easily spooked. I used to raise them. We are so easily traumatized because we are living in an unstable world. But I do believe that we can learn to manage our fears if we have the right training and information and if we're under the control of the Holy Spirit. There was a recent study in the Journal of Personality Disorders that pointed out that emergency responders such as ambulance workers and firefighters seem to share or to display a lower level of fear. I don't really understand that, but I think that it comes with training. I recall years ago standing in the front yard talking with a friend of mine who was an emergency responder. Suddenly a car went sailing over the ditch on the other side of the road and crashed to the ground. He ran over and started dealing with the situation in an urgent but calm and professional way while I stood there having an absolute panic attack. He had training. He had experience. He had learned to manage the adrenaline. I've asked emergency responders a number of times how they manage to remain calm in a crisis, and they all say the same thing. It's part of the training, part of the job, something they learn. So I'm certain we can all learn to manage our fears and our anxieties better. And as followers of Christ, the Bible is our training manual. Nothing would help you more than going through the Bible's 74 occurrences of the phrase, do not be afraid, and doing a Bible study on it. I don't have the time to do that now, but I can show you a small handful of them. The first time this phrase occurs in the Bible is when God told Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. At the Red Sea, the Lord told the people through Moses, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord said to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. David told his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous into the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, because the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all of the work for the service of the Lord is finished. Jesus told his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The Apostle Peter told those who are facing the prospect of persecution, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. One writer said that it's hard to count the fear knots in the Bible because they come in so many different forms. So if you are insecure or afraid, or if you need reassurance, spend some time tracking down the fear knots of the Bible. I believe that it would change your attitude in your life. I've done it myself. If you're battling anything from anxiety to post-traumatic stress, find a concordance. You can find one online in places like Bible Gateway. And you can type in the phrase, do not be afraid, in quotation marks. And you can create your own Bible study on a legal pad or on a Word document. Study each occurrence of this phrase. Notice who said it and to whom it was said. Study the context and meditate on the truths there and apply it to yourself.
make notes and then go on to the next one. If you have a Bible with a cross reference in the margin, then look up the cross references, type out some of the best verses and go to work memorizing them, meditate on them. This is the spiritual therapy that comes from tapping into God's marvelous ministry of personal reassurance. So the first thing that the Lord said to Paul was, do not be afraid. Second, the Lord told Paul to keep on speaking. Do not be silent. It seems strange that the Lord Jesus would say this to the Apostle Paul, because few men have been more vocal and assertive about the gospel than he had been. But this apostle was disheartened. That seems to be the case if you read between the lines. And it took a personal visit, as it were, from Jesus to keep Paul in the game. He needed encouragement and reassurance. Don't we all? John Piper is a powerful writer, and he was the pastor of Bethlehem Church in Minneapolis for many years. But back in 1986, after he had been at Bethlehem Church for six years, he almost quit. And he wrote in his journal, The church is looking for a vision for the future, and I do not have it. O Lord, have mercy on me. I am so discouraged. I am so blank. I feel like there are opponents on every hand, even when I know that most of my people are for me. Have mercy, Father, have mercy on me. I must preach on Sunday, and I can scarcely lift my head. Well, John Piper went on for many years, and he has had an impact on the entire globe. But I know what he was feeling, and maybe you do too. On that day, he needed to hear the Lord tell him, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Dr. Edmund of Wheaton College used to say, it is always too soon to quit. Well, speaking of quitting, I'm going to stop at this point with today's episode, but next week we'll pick it up at the same point and go on with these five great statements that the Apostle Paul said to a disheartened, traumatized Apostle Paul here in that city of Corinth. So study ahead, read this chapter, and it's such a wonderful blessing when you hear the word, uh, when you hear the Lord speaking these words as though they were being spoken to you. You know, that's really the secret of Bible study. It's when you study it. At some point as you go over it, it's as though the Lord is speaking those words just to you. Well, right now, this is me speaking to you, thanking you for joining me for my podcast. It is created and produced by Clearly Media. The music is by my grandson, Elijah Rowe. I'm very proud of him and very proud of you. Check out all of my resources at robertjmorgan.com. And may God be with you until we meet again.